What made you decide to start something knowing that it was so hard? If I had any idea how hard it was, I never would have done it. If you're an entrepreneur and you're going to do category creation, you basically just have two jobs. You know, job number one is planting an idea in somebody's head. And then the second thing that you have to do is to attach a value to that thing. It really requires a lot of effort to make value. The reality is like people only see value like if they exchange money and they've used it. So it's like a great time to be delivering core functionality, especially infrastructure functionality and software. You can use open source for marketing, but you don't have to confuse that with your actual product offering. It's not marketing because I'm a developer. Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Hey, so what do you like about continuous delivery? So, I, I mean, I think that there's a broader movement around continuous delivery that is really interesting, which is, Traditionally, infrastructure and operations came from like an independent group, right? I mean, like my first job out of undergraduate was working on simulations code in a national lab, and you know I couldn't control anything about infrastructure. I mean, I really didn't have budget to buy a pencil. You know, like you'd get you know, you'd get infrastructure, and you'd have some application to code, and you'd work on that application. We'd kind of fill around with our make files or whatever, and that was pretty much it. So the cool thing about like the, the broad movement now, and I think CI/CD is, is is just part of this, is like is more and more applications, application developers are actually getting responsible for operations. This is like provisioning, this is delivery, this is deployment, and that's a big, huge change in like not only what technologies get created, but like who's consuming it and why they're consuming it. And so I think it's actually one of the more interesting trends right now. So this would be a great time for you to introduce yourself. My name is Martin Casado, and I'm a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, but you have a—I mean, you did stuff before you were at Trace. <laughs> <laughs> like... That's right. That's right. The quick arc, as I mentioned, I, I uh, used to be kind of a research scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. So I spun out of that, did my PhD at Stanford. My research was in networking, so I was part of the team that started software-defined networking. So uh, I was there for four years. Spun out of that, started a company called Nasira, where we did software-defined networking. I did that for five years. That was acquired by VMware. I ran the networking security business suite at VMware for almost four years, and like four months ago, I, I decided to change and become a VC. So you basically created a category. What, what drove you to do that? What made you decide to start something knowing that it was so hard? <laughs> okay, so that, you, you, you're talking about software-defined networking. Yeah. For, for the yeah. viewers at home, yeah. Martin roughly invented software-defined networking. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of people contributing, but I, I think. Um, you know, a lot of the the kind of original momentum came from my thesis. You know, I, I'm gonna be totally honest. If I had any idea how hard it was, <laughs> I never would have done it. Really? Yeah, I I think so. And it's just like, um, I think you would have. Well, maybe, maybe, but um, it would have been a lot more daunting. I mean, I, I came out of Stanford pretty darn naive. Like, <laughs> I was like, this is gonna be easy, and you know, like. You know, now nine years and tons of gray hair. You know, later I just realized that man, it was a battle. Like I don't think I had one quarter that was easy. <laughs> like, it was like everything was a battle. Wow. This is the way I think about it. Like if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to do category creation, you basically just have two jobs. I mean, in addition to the, you know product development. And you know, job number one is, you know, there's going to be some constituency out there you're selling to. 
And that constituency, they wake up every morning and they think about all sorts of stuff, but they're not thinking about your thing because it hasn't been created yet. So that like object in the mind space, that like that object doesn't even exist in their brains yet. So the first thing you have to do is like create that object. It's like you know Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception. You know, you're like <laughs> like you go in and you're like planting an idea in somebody's head. And so like like you know it has to become a thing. Something people think about, something people know and integrate. And this is from nothing, and that's hard. I mean, it, for for us, it took five years plus, and it, it touches every aspect of of thought leadership. It does. Analyst relations and technical conferences and you know broad marketing, you know um, technical. So, so the activities that you're doing in that in that category creation are, are largely marketing and getting people to to hear about the the activity and, and learn about it. I think so. I think that's actually like I think maybe technologists will view marketing as kind of this you know pretty shallow thing, but I think you're exactly right. It's marketing, but it, it is it is often very technical marketing. Mm-hmm. Often in the in for example uh, in the guise of open source, right? I mean you're releasing open source projects. You Getting people to use it, you're mm-hmm. going to standards bodies, you're going to conferences. It's an incredibly technical thing, but yeah, in the end, it's marketing in the sense that is you're actually creating awareness and a market. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that you've got to do as an entrepreneur is like if you're doing category creation, it's like nobody's thinking about your thing. You've got to get them to think about your thing, which that's a lot of work. I mean, in, in my experience, you know, five to seven years. And then the second thing that you have to do, which is just as much work, is then you have to attach a value to that thing. And I and I think like we as technologists like there's this kind of fallacy that we have. We're like okay, like I'm going to create this new widget. Like let's say I create the iPhone. Uh, everyone will know how amazing it's going to be. Everyone Ex- will exactly. yeah. Yeah. build it and they will come. Yeah, there's like intrinsic value in my widget. So I, like I take my widget and I put it on a sidewalk and someone picks it up and they're like, this is amazing. It's worth mm-hmm. millions of dollars, right? Yeah. And that's totally not the reality, right? The reality is like people only see value like if they exchange money and they've used it. And if you're doing category creation, how do people know what that value is? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very difficult thing. And when you say attaching value, do you mean monetizing or is, is there more to it than that. I I meant more the idea. I mean, it ultimately, this materializes monetization. I just mean, like, let's say that um, you know you're my constituency, and uh, I've created this new widget. So first, I need to get you to think that this is actually a real thing. So I'm like, you need, you know, I'm going to call it. Um, I'm going to call it a new phone. So you need this new phone. So first I need to convince you that you need the new phone. And then the second thing I need to convince you is like it's worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to you. Because mm-hmm. you need to mentally actually attach that value to it. And, and it turns out like introducing new concepts don't necessarily have value of the new concepts, right? Normally the value comes from like, for example, like an actual transaction. There's a psychology around this. Or at least some experience with it, knowing that it's going to, you know, I don't think you can just sit back to a couch experiment and be like, oh, you know, I think this is going to save me money, therefore it's worth something. I mean, right. it, it really requires a lot of effort to, to, to make value. So the the category that that I see being created, or the, the one that's closest to me at least, is, is this idea of of containers and, and, and Docker, and more specifically Kubernetes. Yeah. Right? You know, the, the the idea that that there's this sort of cloud infrastructure over there, yeah. um, and the way that that I became aware of it is, is exactly the way the way you're talking about. You know, there's open source coming out there that that yeah. you can use and that you can hack on yourself, and and there's this talks up there where where people blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I think that like I said, this point, and certainly f- for all the listeners, I think this is one of the most salient points of this decade, actually, and which is going to be a weird thing to say, at least in infrastructure, is the following. So, so in the past, how did we create mindshare and customer bases? Well, there's this whole PMM function and this whole sales function, mm-hmm. and if you look at the big enterprise companies, if you look at Cisco and IBM and Oracle, like really their power is this function. You know, they own the sales channel. They have great relationships with the analysts. They've got great relationships with the customers. They've got certifications in the classes. So anytime they have a new concept, they take that concept and they cram it down the machine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as a startup, like it doesn't matter how cool your technology is, the hardest thing is to actually penetrate that, that channel. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to this new era of open source, 
you know, now you actually have this hack that's never existed before where there's the buyer is shifting from an operator to a developer. Mm-hmm. Developers like open source, and you right. can actually create these concepts by getting yeah. open source out there and getting them to use it. So you're yeah, like, we, we've been talking about this sort of thing, like the, just just the idea that it's bottom up now versus versus top down. Yeah, and and, and not only that, it's a totally different buyer that's a totally different aesthetic, right? I mean, like, I don't think developers care as much about analysts. I don't think developers no. care as much about like the, you know, 42 long sales dude with like white teeth in the boat. I don't no. think developers care as they, much. They won't even answer his call. About the cha- exactly, about no. the channel. I think they don't care about complex procurement processes. No. They want very simple. But, so having sold software for a little bit myself, like you still, if you get into a bigger dev- corporation, you still then start to run into that. This is such right, a great point. You like, get like, there because the developers yeah. were first asking but, for it to exist. So, so like the longest part of our sales cycle is you get bounced to procurement and legal. Absolutely. So, so this, I think this is the most important nuance of this argument is exactly what you said, which is, I've always maintained that open source and the developer is replacing marketing and pre-sales, not sales. Right, it's like mm-hmm. you you get yep. credibility to the account. You can get things to technical close and technical validation. You can get account pull. So it's almost like filling the pipeline, getting the transaction done. I still believe, and for a long time, you need to have a professional direct sales force mm-hmm. that will be in there, like pushing things through procurement. Oh, well, the thing—it's thing- just a lot of work. I mean, because you pass the technical valuation, <laughs> they're like, okay, go talk to procurement, and to procurement, you're a widget. Right, but the but the good news is 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 now it's possible. Where in the past, I mean. Where in the past, to get that much legitimacy, to get things to technical close was very difficult. You didn't have the certification, you didn't have access to the buyer, you didn't have the account rep to make the introduction, you didn't have any of that. That's fair. And now you do, and now it's just about actually going through the logistics. And you're absolutely right, it's hard, it's Baroque, you know, I've called it like tribal bloodletting, it's all <laughs> of that, but like, you can do it as a startup. Well, the thing that, that I think is really interesting is, is kind of the, the converse of that. It's that people who, who work in open source now are becoming actually incredible marketers. Like, yeah. they, they don't refer to themselves as such, yeah. but they they have amazing social media presence. Yeah. They, they they build up tons of channels, whether it's you know, yeah. mailing lists or just you yeah. know, Twitter followers and um, it's podcasts like every, it's and all like that. It's like everybody recreates marketing, right? Like right. everybody's like, oh, we don't need marketing. And then you're like, well, what what is this thing over here where you have an email list? Oh, that's not marketing. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's not marketing because I'm a developer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I I really think that those that know how to do this are some of the most valuable people in the entire industry because mm. this is the new entree for products into customer bases. And so, I mean. I mean, there's another kind of potential pitfall here, which is so let's say you're using open source for marketing, right? Now, um, there's probably $7 billion of have been invested in open source companies and only about a billion dollars worth of returns. I'm not sure if those numbers are true, but I hear them quoted all of the time. But the, the reality is a lot of money's gone into it, not money has come back. And the reason is, is because now if you're using open source to do marketing, you're almost cannibalizing your sales motion, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Um, and so for the long time, kind of the only open source model we knew to work was like the Red Hat model, which is a mm-hmm. services company. Only Red Hat's ever pulled it off. It's been very difficult. But another shift has happened in the last few years is people have figured out that actually you can use open source for marketing but you don't have to confuse that with your actual product offering and when the rise of services you can actually use open source for customer traction and you can monetize the service and when it comes to services there's no discussion of open source or closed source so i think that we're actually starting to unlock viable business models where you use open source for for marketing who do you think does a good job of that 
I think there's a number. I think GitHub is a great example, <laughs> like right. I mean, like mm-hmm. Git isn't even built by GitHub. It's it's, it's the standard in Linux. Um, but if you look at GitHub, it's a very fast growing mm-hmm. company that's that's based on open source, and so everybody knows about it because of Git. So Git is 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 doing the marketing, and this is just one example. I think there are many. And it, it, it's funny that you cite that as as based on open source because almost none of their stack is actually open exactly. source. Exactly the service offering. So right. like right. No no yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I, I think so that, when you say service, you're you're, you're referring to like software as a service, sorry. not not like services and consulting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, should, right. I should have been more. I should have been more clear. So yeah. So so the the longstanding question for since you know certainly 1995 is how do you build an open source company that has the the margins of a closed source software company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're open source, seeing it, then you know basically you become a, a service and support company. And what has happened in the last decade is exactly what you're saying is like people realize that you can get account credibility and account traction, account mm-hmm. knowledge through open source, but that you can offer a back end service offering as a service offering. Mm-hmm. And monetize that, and it's often a closed source stack on the back end right. that you're doing. But you don't talk about open source, closed source as much with service offerings, with software as a service offerings. It's normally if you're consuming something on prem that you think about those things. So, how do you feel about this? You know, people who are building, uh, let's say CircleCI is a, a good model, but there's a ton of them building something that that's a SaaS product, a hosted SaaS product, but that then sells to like uh, people who who use it in their own VPC and pseudo on prem sort of thing. Oh gosh. So I, I come from this somewhat traditional world of selling enterprise software, mm. and in there, there's this whole discussion, and I was part of this discussion of like, is it on-prem or is it off-prem in general? And mm. I and I've re- I think that you framed this question perfectly. I've realized that that's kind of like a false dichotomy, and so it's actually not the right question to ask. I mean. I think as a service is actually an operational model and a delivery model, it doesn't really matter if it's on-prem or if it's off-prem, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like if you look at the like I think that the days of selling closed source software to companies is done, but you can sell them services and you actually can sell them appliances, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at like actually appliances, appliances almost look like services, right? They're boxes that have services and often the upgrade is happening remotely, management happening remotely. And so I, I do think that that the right model for these companies to do, I think Circle Sky is a great example of this. You have open source that, that that customers use. You have a SaaS offering, but you also have an on-prem delivery offering. As long as you don't change the operating model, as long as it still looks like a SaaS model somehow, whether it's a managed service or something like mm-hmm. that. I think as soon as it becomes shippable software, where you have to manage a heterogeneous set of environments, you have to manage all yeah. the day two ops, right, it becomes right, right. unwieldy. Yeah, I, I had a really interesting uh, discussion the other day uh, with the VP of Sales from Circle CI mm-hmm. and somebody from Microsoft, and Circle CI was basically like, "We love the selling on-prem; it's helping." You, mm-hmm. Microsoft is like we're trying to get off prem desperately. <laughs> so it was, yeah. it was not the argument you thought was going to happen. Well, I, I, I think it's probably because of you know how sensitive the IP is. So if you're talking about something like you know, well, okay, documents are, pr- are pretty sensitive, but the source code is very sensitive, and so people are not as happy to ship that off prem as um, as we once thought was going to be the case. Well, yeah. so, so Microsoft's reasoning was, and this might be the way Microsoft had done it, is they have ten year maintenance agreements. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, we have you know. If you have a problem, upgrade to the latest yeah. version, and then we'll deal with you. Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of what what everyone has. There's no idea. You know, there used to be this idea that that you'd create a fork, yeah. um, and then you'd backport things to to that fork or the old the old version or something like that. And I don't know anyone who's doing this sort of 
services and, and or, you know, the SaaS with um, a managed on-prem version that that does anything but the latest version is the version. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, you know, having come from this world, anybody that's shipping closed source software or even software in general has so many hurdles to overcome that someone that's doing a SaaS offering or a managed offering doesn't have. For example. Heterogeneous environments. Everybody's got a different hardware setup, right? Sometimes you have skilled administrators, sometimes you don't. And when you're dealing with distributed systems, like a skilled administrator is really critical, right? Mm-hmm. Like these things are clusters are hard to manage. Remote debugging is really hard. I mean, a lot of the the debugging is is happening on the site in these day two operations. We've got existing tools. You've got to support all of those interfaces. Um, and then you've got like the mother of, ca- of all cache consistency problems, right? You've got ten thousand customers, and everyone is running a different version, and you <laughs> yeah. have to maintain all those versions on the back end. And so, I mean, it's just a massive, massive of disadvantage just mm-hmm. from like an operation yeah. standpoint for a company. So if you can do it as a managed offering, just like mm-hmm. you said, or a managed version or a SaaS offering, you automatically have all of the the, the velocity of that, and you're not being weighted right. down. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about heterogeneous environments because what we see is they're really it doesn't feel like there's heterogeneous environments anymore. I mean, we're we're selling so so there's there's VMware is kind of one environment, or the, there's Amazon VPC is another environment, but it's not like there's you know twelve Unixes anymore. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's a super good point. So I'm used to um, uh, talking to hardware, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> and so in in that case, like, yeah. and, and especially on the networking side, I mean, like, it's just like this kind of like this eclectic you know collection of like computer science past, right? right like you right, go into right. like a lot of seriously, like we go into these data centers, and then you'll still have like mainframes, and you'll yeah. have old AI boxes, and you'll have IRX. You just have all this random stuff uh, on the hardware. I think one of the most exciting trends is exactly what you said. Is actually we're seeing unification on the the software side, mm-hmm. and I think that you can actually parallel what happened to consumer devices in two thousand. So in two thousand. Or sorry, in about two thousand six. So, so do you guys remember like GPSs, like yeah. actual like like hardware GPSs? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, so like yeah, in two thousand, yeah. you rent a car, you get a hardware GPS. So like most consumer goods were fixed function, mm-hmm. whether it was like to play a game on your PlayStation Portable, or it was like a GPS, or it's for learning, or it's for health, or whatever. The iPhone came out as like a ubiquitous software platform in Android. So you had two ubiquitous software platforms, and then like small teams of software developers got to go after huge markets and mm-hmm. displace them. Like Waze is a great yep. example, yeah. right? So I think this exact same thing is happening in infrastructure, mm-hmm. where in the past the only um, standard interface was like IP. <laughs> so you have to put yeah. something in a box, right? Or maybe x86, or you have to install it on bare metal. But now, if you look at software stacks on the endpoint, you're absolutely right. It seems like they've kind of started to unify, whether yeah. it's Linux, whether it's AWS, whether it's VMware, whether it's OpenStack, whatever it is. So it allows you to deliver functionality just entirely in software. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think the value is just moving further and further up. Yeah, exactly. Well, especially with containers, because you're it's a homogenous environment. I mean, you you, you get you yeah. get a certain kernel version, yeah. maybe, but I don't know anyone who's really cared about a kernel version in, in quite some time. Right, right. So you you build whatever software and it runs on whatever operating system yeah. that you want, not whatever operating system the customer happens to have. Yeah, yeah. And I just think I just think it's a really big deal for those that are doing startups. I mean, like everything we've talked about, it basically are. In support of small technical startups, right? So, for mm-hmm. example, all of PMM is replaced by a technical function, which is open source. Clearly, like I think, like a small startup is going to be better at doing that. That's technically focused. Number two, instead of having to worry about like a hardware supply chain, like you know, wrapping yeah. things in sheet metal, which requires all supply chain management, putting mm-hmm. things in shipping containers, putting things on boats, etc. Like you can just deliver stuff entirely in software. So it's like a great time to be delivering core functionality, especially infrastructure functionality in software. Yeah, I mean, just the it published an article recently. It's just like the stuff you had to do 15 years ago. Like my friend Andy was at uh, Opsware. Mm-hmm. The stuff you have to do back then, you don't do now. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
Like you don't have to have an ops person on staff. You don't have to buy hardware. Well, I mean, this is another really interesting trend, and I actually don't understand the implications of this one. It's like, um, you know, you've always had kind of an operations layer. Like, you know, I'm a networking dude, so let me talk about networking. So, like, you know, we used to put a bunch of stuff in networks. We'd put like, you know, we do fault isolation networks. We do service discovery networks. We would do security in networks, right? And it seems like things are moving up to the application layer. Things that like traditionally part of ops, things that were traditionally part of the infrastructure, compute networking and storage are now like application libraries, mm-hmm. right? Things like discovery, things like failover, things like load balancing, things like security. And that's a massive shift because now it's in the domain of developers, now you've got more semantics, now it's part of the development process. And so I think that there's implications on on market fragmentation. It's no longer a unified insertion layer. I think that we have to rework a lot of technologies. I mean, I mean, I think this is blurring a lot of traditional lines. When when you're talking about you know, changing of technologies. What, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, I mean, I mean, I think a, a good one is just to talk about context. So um, let's just talk about, um, say, security. So you know, in the past, you would have a box on a wire that would do security, mm-hmm. and and like say a firewall. So what does a firewall actually know? Very little, right? It knows IP pairs. It knows you know port numbers. Maybe of your fancy pants, you can go do some like. You look at the first fifteen hundred bytes of data, and you can try and do some application analysis. But mm-hmm. you're just looking at like bits on the wire, right? Now compare that to these new companies that are doing application level security, where you're actually part of the application, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're running in Node.js, you're running as part of the, the the Python runtime. You know everything. You know users. You know data. You know like high level abstractions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like you can just like absolutely transform like the level and type of security you can do because you've got way more context. You know, it just feels like this is part of this broader movement where you know core networking is being done at the application layer, like routing and discovery, and like microservices architecture, security. Like I mentioned, is being doing this. Like storage is moving up certainly to like the object level, and I think that because you now have more visibility and more semantics, you can build deeper and richer things. But mm-hmm. I also think you get way more fragmentation, like per language fragmentation. Right, right, right. So as opposed to like sitting a box on a wire where that sees everything, you're now going to have like one for Node.js and one for Python or whatever. So I think we're still grappling with the implications mm-hmm. of this, but it's really exciting. Exciting to see this happen. It's, it's interesting that when, when you see a new software product comes out and they're they're an API, right? So the, so they're a HTTP API or a REST API, um, and they still say, oh, you, you know, we we support these three languages because they wrote client libraries for, yeah. for those languages. And people people in the software industry still think of like, you know, we're we're, we're a Python shop or a Ruby shop or, or a Node shop, whatever whatever it is. Even even though there's there's not necessarily a, a requirement for there to be that fragmentation, it, it's still it's still kind of built into yeah. who we are. Yeah, it's such. A good, it's such a good point, and maybe this is just kind of like symptomatic of my past. It, it definitely thinks things are going microservices, and it's more kind of a protocol. So it's almost like we're recreating IP, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're doing it like the JSON level or something like that. And you're right, right that this is actually totally language agnostic. That said, and, and maybe this is a good point. Maybe we're going to see some innovation in this space. That said, a lot of the movement that I've seen. To of infrastructure, core infrastructure things like 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 security to the application layer are at language specific. Like I mean, a lot of the application security guys are basically uh, having mechanisms that hook into the runtimes of these different languages. Right, right, right. And maybe you're right. I mean, maybe maybe what's going to happen is like basically the microservices framework becomes the next internet, and like discovery and routing and naming and everything happens there. And you're going to have these kind of protocol specific boxes that mediate these things. Right? They speak JSON or whatever, and they can be firewalls at that high level. I have a total jump shift of a question. So you said at the beginning, like if you'd known what you'd known now, you perhaps would not have started the company. <laughs> I, my saying is you can't A/B test life. But uh, <laughs> do, you, do you wish you were still a PhD, and do you think a PhD has helped you with starting your company? And I also, I guess, can ask the same question to Paul. Uh, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, so so if I, if I roughly segment my life between twenty and twenty and thirty, I was basically a, a, a you know core researcher. I was an academic and I was an engineer. And then thirty and forty, I, I did the company. And then now I'm, I'm doing investing. I just turned forty. Um, so between twenty and thirty, that I felt like that was kind of like leading up to doing my you know this academic work. And you know, the PhD was nice because I, I haven't found any other times in my life where someone's like you know actually like, so when I joined like my advisor went to go do a startup like immediately after. <laughs> And I still remember. I remember I sent him an email. I'm like, "What should I work on?" And his response was like, "Whatever you like." <laughs> and and I didn't, I didn't know that that was like a, a metaphor for PhD, which is basically it's the deep end, right? And mm-hmm. At least in my you know in my program, it's like you know, basically do whatever you want. And like being thrown into a vacuum and having to kind of make some sort of form from the chaos like means a lot. That said, it's a massive investment of time that I don't think there's any commensurate payout afterwards. I think that it, I think at least in my experience, you have to view it as a self, like a self-enclosed system where I got the value out of doing it, but I don't think like having done it, it's worth justifying the time. I think you can be just as successful as an entrepreneur and as a technologist and as a coder and as anything else without having the PhD. I, I'm not sure I do I necessarily agree with that. I, I think that there's there's a lot of value that you get. Coming out the end of, of doing the PhD, I, I agree that most of the value is is from the time that you spend there. But you know, e- even just looking at sort of the social proof value, you know, when I, when I was trying to when I was trying to raise money, when I was getting my green card, you know, the 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 value. I, I thought it was of all being, about the podcast. The podcast, <laughs> uh, you know, being Doctor Bigger is is a lot easier uh, than not. I find. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think, I think, it, like these things largely depend on your personal arc, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I'm, I'm just kind of sensitive to mine. I mean, like, you know, when I when I did graduate with my PhD, I, I got a faculty offer at Cornell, right? And I, clearly, this is something you don't get without a PhD. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it was very helpful. But what I immediately did is turn around and I, I, I started a startup. And like, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I look at other founders like Sanjit Biswath of Meraki, who's now doing Sansar, I mean, you know, the, the guy didn't do his PhD. He was, I think he's a way better entrepreneur than I ever was. And I think he was like hugely successful. So, I mean, I think again, like I got a lot out of the PhD, but I just, I don't feel for my particular art, you know, it was. I had a, I had a funny experience where I was meeting this guy who worked at Google on, on compilers. So I did, I did my PhD in compilers. And I had done my PhD because I had looked at this site called compilerjobs.com. <laughs> and it was it was all you need a PhD and you know from a name brand compiler school. I, I remember this stuff. And so, all right, I'm gonna do my PhD. I want to work in compilers. And then I was I was talking to this guy and it's like, oh, where, where where did you get your PhD? And he's like, I, I don't have a PhD. <laughs> and, I, and it just blew my mind at that point that maybe maybe there's a thing, you know, some other path that you could just his his path was like working on open source uh, since he was 18 and then at 22, he got hired to be a compiler writer. It was like, oh, I could have done that instead. That that would have been a much better idea. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's just kind of like a selection bias here too, which is interesting. So in my in my experience, like often the best developers didn't finish college, mm-hmm. and, but I think that the reason is is just because like you know the job market. It really is a Darwinistic system, and I think that if you have this adverse selection of like you know you don't have a degree, I mm-hmm. think that is much more difficult. So the people that that managed, I mean, one of my core engineers that I worked with for seven eight years, who's super instrumental to the product, never had a college degree. Actually, multiple mm-hmm. of them didn't, and uh, you know these guys often become you know like principal engineers or whatever, but they do it just through sheer skill rather mm-hmm. than you know. So, so anyways, I, I, listen, I think for some people, PhD is super valuable as an experience to do. I think you know, like like how you use it depends on your personal arc and what you need to get out of it. But like, I don't think I definitely don't think it's necessary to be a great entrepreneur and to be mm-hmm. widely successful. I, I notice that you can split PhDs into 
people who are roughly the most brilliant people I've ever seen and people who are complete idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's like these two camps that some people some people do it because they they, they love it and they're yeah, amazing I mean, and yeah. some people do it because they've nothing else they to do no with their option. lives and they can't do a job and actually anyone can really get through a PhD. It's yeah. it's yeah. hard work more than anything. That's yeah, so yeah. true. I was giving advice to a, a dude from my college. He was a programmer and he was he really loved machine learning. Mm-hmm. And so he was like should I go back and get a PhD? And my advice was, I don't think you'll make any more money. You might make less, even yeah. because you might get pigeonholed. But if you really love machine learning, like go 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 get your PhD in that. Uh, but I don't think you'll make much more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I mean, unless you want to be a professor or you want to join like core research, I wouldn't do it for for like future prospects. I'd do it because it's actually one of the few times in your life where you know there's just like you know think really big and probably impractical and do something amazing. Yeah. And like you have four to six years to do what you like. Yeah. Um, right. Just make sure it's good at the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and it, and it does. And listen, it feels good to kind of crawl out of that cave, right? Like you know, when you finally, when you finally see the light, you know, and you're like, you know, you're pale and you're malnourished and whatever. But like yeah. you've you've crawled I, I, out. I right? fed like, Paul some chocolate. <laughs> I, I I regard it as being very similar to to raising a seed round. You know, you you you, you, you have some funding to do something, and you kind of thought you knew what what it was going to be, and you might be totally wrong. You might need to pivot like six times before you hit something good. Oh, it's it's funny. I went back um, the other day. I went back and looked at our angel funding deck, mm-hmm. and like. It's basically kind of the same. Yeah, but I mean, you kind of knew what you were doing. There's a lot of people who who start off doing something and then end up kind of doing something wildly different. If I had built a pitch deck for Circle CI on day one, it would have been vastly different to what we actually shipped like six months later. I mean, Circle CI seems like a pretty comprehensive. Well, so so, so the first thing that, that that anyone saw about Circle was that it was for web apps. Um, and then we we added iOS afterwards, and now you can kind of run you know a large amount of stuff on it. Uh, but but when we started, we were building like this CI for everything. So it was going to be CI that like ran your your on-prem machines, and it did performance testing. And it you know, I was working at Mozilla beforehand, so I was looking at replacing what Mozilla has. So there was going to be oh, all sorts pipeline. of like you know you could add your your three thousand machines to our something, and it would have it would have. We might have ended up in the same space or in the same place as where we are five years later, but the 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 thing that made us successful was that it was really really good at web apps. Yeah. Um. And it was it was like if if Heroku and this is how we pitched it. If Heroku had built CI, this is what Circle CI would be, and that is why we took off. And when I look at people who did similar things, so that there's that Jenkins company, um, Clydebees, that no one loves. Uh, because it's just Jenkins, right? It's, it's Jenkins plus we added some cloud to it, um, and you know everyone everyone loves the the oh my god you, you you click one button and it just works or you can spend two days setting the setting the whole thing up. Did your company end up where you thought it was where it had started? So certainly not from like the seed, but from it's funny. I was just going through the the Series A deck recently, and and for the the, the bulk of the deck, we actually executed pretty much every step exactly when we said we can execute it, which is actually very oh, yeah. rare. So here's just kind of a, a very related. But somewhat tangential point is, I was talking to a good friend of mine recently who uh, he's done multiple startups. He's was an employee at multiple startups, and he's thinking about going to a new startup. This is a senior engineer, like like really um, experienced guy, and he's and he told me he said, "Listen, like when I select startups now to go to, I always make sure they've gone through one pivot." 
<laughs> and I said, "Why is that?" And he said, "Well, because the number one thing that I've experienced that kills startups is you know you do your basic diligence and they've got reasonable funding is basically some issue with the founding team, and you don't see these things materialize yeah. until you actually go through some stress. And a pivot is a pretty good stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and to put like just some numbers on that, if I if I go across kind of an average swath in a in a general VC portfolio, about seventy percent seventy percent of the companies will have a founder already gone." Which mm-hmm. is a really striking number if you think about like you know these guys have equity that they've probably vested in that's no longer part of the company and so forth and so I actually think that like you know most companies will go through pivots you know there's there's stories about that and I actually don't think it's I think it's actually for general hygiene I think it's not a bad thing because you're going to go under a ton of stress anyways and it's interesting that pretty experienced. Startup engineers will actually look at that as a good sign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> this is a different way than we we normally view yeah. it, right? Right. Because yeah. I was like you, like actually, like uh, we were lost in the woods for about a year from seed to A, but from A on, I mean, we executed on plan. Yeah, why, why were you lost in the woods? I, I, yeah, I, I think a number of things. I, I think we were incredibly naive. You know, I mean, it was just a research group that spun yeah. out of Stanford. Um, this is also in the. Um, Kind of wild and woolly days of 2007, where like you know you're just basically turning down money all the time, and I, for some reason you know you think you're so awesome, you know, like you know, and then you know, so we had like this kind of you know we're going to do this super general platform, we're going to boil the ocean, we have this basically an architecture but no product. I mean, it was this kind of classic early days. I mean, we ha- we, we knew there's a problem to solve, but like basically our solution was an architecture, not a product, which mm-hmm. is always a mistake, or or at best a platform but not a product. Then 2008 hit. And that's when we, we had to grow up. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you guys remember? There's just bloody carcasses, like you know, still like quivering, like everywhere that you walked. You know, Sequoia released a rest in peace, Good Times deck. I mean, everybody was going out of business. We stayed at 12 people for about a year and a half, just because you know, like funding was so tight, and that really forces you to focus. You know, at the end of the day, like you can't raise forever, and at that point, you couldn't raise at all. And so, yeah, so I remember, I remember. When so you I, got it together before you raised again. Yeah, yeah, I remember we were in a tailspin for about a month where I'm like, man, this is like, I, I wasn't really sure. Like, I could pitch a broad vision, but I couldn't, and this is when you know your mistake. If you can uh, uh, pitch a broad vision on how the world's going to change, but you can't pitch specifically what product's going to do it, mm-hmm. you know, it's like basically if your pitch is like, here's a litany of use cases we can do with our general platform, you're in, you're in a bad spot. Right. So we were in the, you know, we're in this tailspin. I remember staying up all night one night and we just sat down and we're like, okay, this is the bet we're going to make. And it's hard, and then you make the bet, and yeah, and we kind of penciled it on out. And you, you got the bet right. We got the bet right. And was there a was there a close second that would have been the wrong bet? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Actually, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's it's hard to talk in the abstract without talking specifically about what we did. But but I'll, I'll say one thing, and this is not you know specifically about the product. But at the time, the conventional wisdom was the only way that you could build networking was to to wrap it in sheet metal and mm-hmm. and, and shell sheet metal. They're like the only way that these guys know how to buy is sheet metal. The only way the channel knows how to sell is sheet metal. So you need to sell a box. I mean, we even had some of our investors. I remember one in specific. I was in off of Sand Hill on in the Rosewood talking with our investors. He's like, you know, Martin, you're like this, you know, you're a bright kid. You know, <laughs> but like those, those conversations. Are yeah, never that's good. right. Yeah, like the <laughs> pet, pet, the pet on the head. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, no, he's nobody like, ever calls me a kid and then a bright kid. Yeah, Edith, yeah. um, I think you're a bright kid. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, he's like, in my heart of hearts, this is going to have to be wrapped in a box. And what we were trying to do is we we're trying to sell network functionality of software. And it, to this day, I, I believe that we never would have had the outcome that we had. Which I I mean, it was, I mean, it was one of the largest exits ever in enterprise software. I think it's actually the, the largest on multiples of revenue. Is if we would have decided to tie it to a box, I don't think mm-hmm. we would have had a company. Yeah. I just don't think we would have had a company. Yeah. 
I love all the stuff you're saying about disrupting enterprise software, given that you came out of enterprise software. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> what do you think is the role of the CIO in this future that you paint? CIO, I mean, CIO to me is is, is kind of a business executive function around information systems. I, I think actually to me, what's a, even a more interesting question is like, what is a CTO? Mm-hmm. I think it's actually one of the most ill-defined titles in in all of Silicon Valley, and the job description is ill-defined. So, like, well, it, I think a, a CTO is is a founder who was there at the start and kind of got lost and and has has fun at new technology. It could, it could <laughs> be right. I mean, well, but it, so it depends. So, so I, I hear CTO from like you know post Series B. I'm like, yeah, that's probably what you do. Yeah, it, it could be, but I mean. Here's here's what I've seen for CTOs. I mean, I've seen uh, CTOs that are basically architects. Right, so it's a hundred percent inbound function, but it's not a developer; it's, it's an architect. I've seen CTOs that are VPs of engineering, so yep. they basically mm-hmm. manage engineering teams. I've seen CTOs that are kind of like that crazy research guy that still has his foot in academia and probably mm-hmm. isn't doing any direct product stuff. I've seen, seen CTOs that are basically doing product management functions, so they're, they're the conduit between the customer mm-hmm. and the product. I've seen CTOs that are outbound sales; they're basically super SEs, like you know, yep. you, you like this is the person that brings things to technical close. He's the most credible person in the room, and I've seen CTOs that basically function as CEOs. I mean, they do all the technical strategy. They do the building out, and so it's kind of mm-hmm. funny. Like, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, there's the, the two highest jobs in a startup are the CEO and the CTO. Yep. CEO is incredibly well defined. Mm-hmm. We have we have books on CEOs. I mean, you know, like you know, I'm, I'm an Andreessen Horowitz. Ben Horowitz, I thought wrote a phenomenal book. You know, the hard thing about hard things, but finding CEO. Nobody has actually sat down and been, this is what it means to be a CTO. Well, it's so, the same with COOs. I mean, this is what we should do. We should like actually write a. We should write a a, a, a blog it's got post. Seven chapters for each of those different <laughs> jobs. <laughs> well, so I mean, so I mean, not to belabor it, but I mean, you're you're an extremely technical guy. What made you decide to be the CEO instead of the CTO? No, I was CTO. You were. I was. I was. C, I was CTO of, uh, of Nasira, mm-hmm. um, but I I had an outbound business function. I mean, like I you know I was an architect. I wasn't aligned with the product. I was basically mm-hmm. aligned with the go to market sales motion. A lot of the techno strategy around open source, right? So I what mean, did the CEO do? The CEO did PNL, growing, setting culturally, internally. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot more of like what you think a COO did. And he's a phenomenal, phenomenal CEO. He also did a lot of the pricing and packaging. I mean, he was a VP of marketing beforehand mm-hmm. for Palo Alto Networks. And then, so the where did the product function answer to? Product rolled up into the CEO. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So product rolled up into product management CEO, and then um, engineering rolled up in the CEO. When we went to VMware, I became the GM, and then everything rolled up to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was doing both. I was basically, I mean, I had a CTO, but I was doing kind of the evangelical stuff. But it's very mm-hmm. interesting. Like I, I would argue in category creation. Market categorization, the most important function is the CTO function if it's business aligned. Mm, I can see that. Because, because go to market is so technical, mm-hmm. right? Like it's so technical. So you basically need that voice and that understanding of the, the ecosystem as far as the business function. But again, it's such an ill-defined thing that like sometimes you'll have these CEOs that are highly technical that are actually I would consider performing as as, as CTOs. Mm. Like like you'll have a strong technical CEO and a COO. So the COO right, does right, like right, kind right. of all the stuff internally. The CEO yeah. is like so it's a new relic sort of thing. For example, yeah, yeah. that's a great that's a great example. Oh. So yeah. So actually, Travis from Circle CI made a really good point at Glucon Talk. He thinks the danger that companies run into is that they think it works great at the very beginning, but mm-hmm. then when they get bigger. They don't realize that they're designing for companies that are not themselves. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I think dog fooding is one of the the most dangerous things. 
in particular, I noticed that what you're good at when you're a small company are the things that you're going to be bad at when you're a larger company. Because you think that that you just you know how to do this stuff, and you don't hire for it. You maybe if the founding team is like particularly good at writing software or, or, or product managing or, or you know writing blog posts or something like that, they'll be really late hiring marketers or product managers or whatever it is they need because because it's kind of built in and they don't realize there's a separate function that does it. I mean, the best advice Andy well, he gave me many good pieces of advice. Andy, your investor said, "Is um, you got to get leverage." Like he, he's right. He, he's like you because I was like, "Oh, I'm pretty good at marketing. I'll keep doing it myself." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "No, you need to hire a marketing person." Right, and that marketing person for like a year or two won't be as good as as you. But now that person is great, and yeah. I have my time free to do other things. Yeah. The the relationship to to dog fooding here, I think, is that when you build the product for yourselves, you don't. Invest in the function of talking to your customers, and you don't invest in the function of of prioritizing what your customers need because because you yeah, know what they yeah, need, right? Yeah. We all know what they need because we're we're yeah. using the product ourselves. Yeah, right? if you if you make mistake of conflating basically like feature and product understanding mm-hmm. with dog fooding, I think it's a mistake. I think right, dog fooding right. is a good way for like QA, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like like okay, we run it internally to like like surface bugs that happen over normal usage, but to actually think that that will actually drive product roadmap, I think right. is, a, is a huge. Well, it's mistake. it's great on on day one, and it's. Being great at day like four hundred. Did, did you dog food your own stuff at your company, or how did you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I actually think this is kind of like an interesting narrative to pull on. And actually, you and I were talking about this earlier, which is, um, yeah. So we we dog food a lot. So we would build it and we dog food it. But the hundred percent point of dog fooding was not because we we're going to know what features to build next. Mm-hmm. The point of dog fooding was to try and actually run it for real and see like what problems materialize and maybe mm-hmm. some basic operations problem. Like if something happens, what kind of debugging support can you put in? I mean, I think that's kind of legit type of feedback. But I mean, this is very interesting question that's adjacent to this that I think is worth exploring. Which is okay. Let's say you're doing category creation. Yep. So like whatever you you wake like up in the morning. Continuous you're like, integration. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Feature yeah. flag management. Oh, yeah, no, right. no. So, see, I was the opposite of category creation. I was, it was category was built. It was it was, yeah. it was there. Every, everyone needed it, and what we were doing was bringing it to the cloud, and that was a movement that was underway already. We had to do no category creation. We just followed, which is it was the wonderful, which is ideal. Which highly is ideal, recommended. Man. It's, 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 the right, it's the right way to go, man. Like yeah, category, I can barely walk. Right, like, I mean, like, it's just like it's like yeah. Edith's you know hundred miler run of the bear. It's just like the most yeah. grueling, brutal thing. But like, so let's say you decide to go ahead and embark on this kind of Edithian saga of category creation. There's this question of okay, so how do you determine the next set of features? And the reason why this is an interesting question is because, well, I mean, like if you think about the existence of the product, that's it's purely prescriptive. Like the people don't even know it exists, right? And so, like since it's it's totally prescriptive, you're like you need this. And so, of mm-hmm. course, the first features that you come up with, and because you're doing category creation, it takes a while. The first set of features, almost certainly, you're going to come up with. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to say right. this is what you need. At some point in the maturation of the product cycle, at some point, you're going to want to get. Feedback. <laughs> and it's a very interesting discussion of when that is, right? I mean, like if you're too early, generally, and you're using the sales motion for product feedback, mm-hmm. you you tend to build a lot of one-offs and you become a contract engineering shop. And if you do it too late, the market can mature in a different direction than than you're you're going because mm-hmm. it's going to mature and you can actually get feedback. And so, staying very close to the product market fit and maturing market is probably the most critical function for a, an organization to do it. Um, in my experience, I always align that with PM to do that. Yeah, and I think the key is to be able to. I mean, to talk about my own experience is to be able to do it very quickly because if you're doing a release every year, the stuff you're aligning with has already changed. And now we're back to continuous delivery. That's <laughs> <laughs> the title of our podcast. Long circle, but we got there. And Paul, thank you very much for wearing your lunch darkly T-shirt. Oh, yeah. um, so, sorry, go, go on. 
Uh, it's just my point is that like you, you got to be constantly in touch with your customers. Yeah. But the thing is that customers move too. Yeah, yeah. And for me, in category creation, there is some point where you're going from being purely prescriptive. By definition, category creation is mm-hmm. prescriptive because yeah. nobody's thinking about your thing, right? You're going from purely prescriptive, and and the, all the early product releases are going to be prescriptive, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, they they're not even sophisticated thinkers. Like for the first three years, you're the most sophisticated thinker of your of your nascent category. So you've got this newborn category you've created. We're going to call it, you know, whatever, like the Edith product, and no, you know, like you're going to be the world expert in the Edith product, whatever it is. But at some point in time, like you beca- you create a pull based market where you actually will walk into customers that are yeah. more knowledgeable than you because they've surveyed multiple competitors. In the space, mm-hmm. and they've thought deeply about it. They know their use cases better than you do. And once it becomes a pull-based market, you better be plugged into like the the customer need. Mm-hmm. And so like, you've got to be very sensitive. You're starting to being prescriptive, like you know, you know, here's snake oil to or whatever it is to, you know, here's what you need and what you want, and we're going to give it to you. So my, my my perception of of category creation is that you get to own the category when you're done. Well, yeah, um, that's, that's the hope. If, if you're so, if you're, I mean, I don't think a category exists without competition. I just, right, don't, right, I just right. don't think it exists. I mean, I think the only way to have a category if there's multiple voices, multiple people, players, and so that's one of the things that you actually track. Mm-hmm. I think if you created the category, sometimes you can maintain ownership, mm-hmm. but very often that's not the case. Very often it gets away. I mean, like right. you, you could almost argue, like for example, virtualization was, you know, say, created by IBM or something like that, and then mm-hmm. VMware took it. Though for x86 virtualization, VMware did it. But I think there's many cases where categories were created by one company but then another company out executed that. Right. I really do. So how did how did you how did you do that then? Yeah, that, yeah, that's really interesting our, our arc. Um so you know the category that we we you know, are still creating, but I think it's, it's largely there. Was 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 network virtualization? Wasn't SDN? I mean, SDN was this kind of high level kind of architecture thing. But network virtualization is here's a software layer, here's what it does, and and now there's many many companies that that do that. So to quickly define network virtualization. For yeah, me? so network virtualization. So network virtualization means let's say you have a physical. A physical network, right, like in the data center. So you've got a physical network in the data center. So traditionally, this would, you know, you'd have a bunch of stuff in that physical data center. You'd have, you know, VLANs for L2. You'd have L3. You'd have policy routes. You'd have oracles. You'd have all of this stuff. And what network virtualization says is, you know what? Just build a really simple physical network, say just in uh, just using IP, just L3, and then all of the other stuff will make it into software abstraction, just like a virtual machine. So yeah, instead of right. creating a, you know, a virtual machine, you create a virtual network. It looks just like a physical network from operations and management, but it has the flexibility of a virtual machine. So you can create them dynamically and move them around and grow them and shrink them and whatever. And it's 100% software, so it just runs on the servers. So, so just like it's like think about it like a hypervisor for the network, right? right? So now you can create all four through seven services on demand. You can scale them on demand. You can move them between data centers, and it, it addresses a bunch of use cases. So, what's interesting is, I think we did a lot of the early original work, but then you had multiple players in there. Now, if you ask people today who's the leader, I think they would say a toss up between Cisco and VMware. Right, and now Cisco did a lot of the original work as well. Now, but here's the good news: if you're if you're doing category creation, and you're a challenger to be lumped in as a competitor with like the incumbent with a forty billion dollar market cap mm-hmm. or forty billion dollar market or twenty billion dollar market or whatever it is is amazing, right? right? And so like we're very very happy to be like you know shown side by side to to Cisco. And now actually there's quite a bit of collaboration between the two companies, and so. So yeah, so I mean, I, I do think that we emerge as one of the top players. People would consider us one of the top players. Certainly, would consider us the pioneers. But as far as like the absolute leader, I mean, I think that you'd get different answers depending on who you ask. And and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going from zero to some number, every bit of credibility is upside. Yeah, just like uh, Paul, you talked about your Docker article and how people were hurt that they were left out. Oh yeah, yeah. So I wrote an article on Docker and 
the I mentioned a bunch of companies, and satirically, I was making fun of everyone involved. Um, but, the, <laughs> but the people who didn't get mentioned were were annoyed and and, and, and very sad. It's like we're, we're working hard to be part of this this Docker space, and and you know we we're not. So are you gonna are you gonna write another version of that article? That well, so I, everybody. I, so the, I I heard about this because I wrote a follow up that mentioned a few more companies, and one that wrote to me and said, "Oh, you know, that I was really left out." I think you know, you like, 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 like a Dante level thing where yeah, you're gonna have yeah. like multiple layers, include everybody in it. I, 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 I think I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've beaten that horse to death. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, beating horses, it was great to have you over. Do you, do you have any like final thoughts on startups, infrastructure, DevOps? Well, first off, it was, it was great to be here. Thanks so much for the time. I enjoyed I enjoyed the conversation. The only thing that I think I would I would, I would use as a capstone comment is a I do think this is the most exciting time in infrastructure in our lives just because of all the changes we talked about I really do and B I do think that all of the advantages so every time you have like these big shifts these big transformations like you always have new challengers unseat incumbents and market sizes grow we're seeing both the market sizes growing and you're going to see new challengers and it's never been more weighted to technical startups ever like as far as like becoming credible and so it's a great time to have this conversation it's a great time to be in in Silicon Valley and if there's one thing that you want to know as you start your companies you know try to understand whether you're actually a market category or not because everything uh, after that will follow so anyways thanks so much guys awesome thank uh, you thanks for coming over thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me Paul Bigger of CircleCI and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly to learn more about Heavybit visit heavybit.com while you're there check out their library home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders you